welcome to the 6 Eater 10 podcast. This episode is one I never thought would happen. I got to meet up with someone who's helped me quite a lot. He's He's been great. Um, he's, his knowledge and, and passion for the game is contagious. It's, it's unbelievable the way he speaks about it. It's just amazing. And you find that out for here. So I'd like to thank Graham for taking time out of his busy schedule to come meet. It was great. I couldn't have asked for more. There'll definitely be another part with um, 6, 8 or 10 and meets Graham Hunter. Just the way he spoke about his love for Aberdeen, who are his team. When he was younger, going to Pataudry to watch them. When they were blue kits. Yeah, he also spoke about the Sir Alex Ferguson era when he was in charge, which there was a progress um, building up to that. They were, they were motoring on and, and he came along and, and maybe took it to that next level. We also spoke about... Graham's idol, someone who's very close to and love very dearly, Johan Cruyff. God rest his soul. You get to hear Graham speak about him in great detail and what that relationship was like. Finally, we got to touch on a little bit Barcelona and one of my favourites, Andres Iniesta. Now, to hear him speak about that man was great, uh, as well as Cruyff, but Iniesta's probably the, the, the one for me and to them, in terms of today's game, so he gets to see him week in, week out, and he's class and he's few funny little stories in there as well so no I hope you enjoy thanks again for tuning in I hope you have a, a smashing Christmas and New Year have a good one take care and we will be back with some more episodes after Christmas bye now Happy to do it, man. Happy to do it. I'm soberer than I was the last time you asked that question. Because <laughs> I had a big night last night. Ah, brilliant. Okay. But I'm good. I'm good. I'm good you had a good night. Um, you grew up uh, in Aberdeen. Yeah. Watching the greats. I'm, I'm a bit young to remember it, but I can remember it for the VHSs and, and my old boy, my granddad, just uh, the manager, Alex Ferguson, McLeish was playing. I'll stop you there before you get into your question. One of the yes. things I want to make clear is that I grew up not watching Alex Ferguson. When I was growing up, Alec Ferguson was still playing. I remember him playing at Pataudry. Mm-hmm. What I grew up with was a knowledge that my club could, could knock over the old firm. Yeah. And I'm talking about from my first reserve game when we were in the late 60s. So I was watching a side taught how to play football by Eddie Turnbull, mm-hmm. who'd obviously been one of the greats of Scottish football and that, that famous Hibs front five. And when he left, even though I was young, I was aware that Jimmy Bonsorn was a different kind of man. I can't remember now, Craig, how I knew that Eddie was tough and, and Bonsorn was... Uh, just calling him gentle would be wrong, but it was. I think what I learned, what I watched, and given your job, your role right now, you'll equate to this, that Men and women lead differently. Yeah. And I think I, I, I must have picked up, <laughs> if I say I picked up body language, you're not going to call me like clairvoyant when Willie Young threw his, stripped off his uh, shirt and threw it at Jimmy Bonton yeah. while he was being substituted. And she just took his top off. There you go, boss, in the, on the pitch. But genuinely, I think before even that, I had noted that. Something was different about Jimmy Bonson's regime. And then Ali McLeod takes over. And that 
you know, he was a West Coast for a kid like me who was 12 or 13. As it gets. Mm -hmm. The Bullion, like, if he told all of us and his players that he could walk on water, yeah. there was a few months where we'd have believed it. Yeah, yeah. And his legacy shouldn't be that 78 World Cup. So in all that time, my first really, really big memory of football was 1970 when we beat the the Celtic side that went, okay, I wasn't actually playing when I say we, but yeah. my club, the club that I love to my bones, beat a Celtic side that went to the European Cup final, Craig. Yeah. You know, and so they lost by, you know, zero to, to fire. Now, there wasn't much in that game. Maybe they didn't maybe play to their full potential but that was that was a European final against yeah. a very 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 good final side at a time when the Dutch league was about to supply four straight European champions yeah. so again I was taught mostly by Turnbull then by McLeod and to an extent by even signing Billy McNeil mm -hmm. that Aberdeen had I grew up to know that Turnbull had been a great at football, but I already knew that Billy McNeil was a great at football in my own lifetime. Yeah. So just saying that, I'm, what I'm maybe laboriously trying to get at was, much though Alex Ferguson changed my life, didn't just change my club, yeah. he changed my perspective on what was achievable in life. Yeah. So did, subconsciously, so did Eddie Turnbull, so did Ali McLeod, and so did Billy McNeil. Which maybe makes me too easily influenced. <laughs> but I was influenced by people who said, this can be done, whatever it is. Yeah. I don't know if this is a parental advisory, but it's, it was like bollocks to the world. Yeah. We can do this. And little by little, that soaked into my consciousness. And then, flip my neck, then, then comes Fergie. Yeah. I want to jump on. Uh, no, go in. I interrupted only because no, no, I'm not a child of the Fergie yeah, era. Yeah. Yeah. It's my privilege that when he joined, I was 15, 16, yeah. so I was able to have a couple of bucks. Yeah. I was able to travel with the team away. I was able to be conscious of this get-out-of-my-way attitude mm. that the whole club had, yeah. thanks to him, which affected me. But I'd been prepped up. I had been prepped up by years before. Yeah. And I think, I don't know why you do what you do. Do you know why you do what you do? Probably to make a difference with people and players, that's, that's a big one for me. It's a brilliant answer. Mm -hmm. So th that's what I was fishing for because yeah. I don't think most people know Turn Crust, it was what was there, I don't have anything else, whatever. Yeah. All I can say to you is that I think that what you're doing, what people like you do, can make a difference subconsciously, subliminally, to boys and girls as they grow up. And it is about participation health, fitness, enjoyment, team spirit, but also what you're teaching, mm. what those people taught me, even though that wasn't their aim, yeah. can, can literally take hold of your life and change it, yeah. radically. Mm -hmm. That's exactly why I get into it, it was um, obviously I fell out of football through a few bad injuries and lost my way a wee bit, came back and thought how, how can I make myself better, how can I help other people? And, I went into coaching, went to college, studied what I had to do. Went into my job, went to America for a while, um, came back. And How did you lose your way? It was just a few bad injuries, badly influenced by people who were around about me. And lifestyle? Yeah, yeah, um, changed. I was maybe sitting at 20 and I decided that's it, I'm done. I can't come back for any more of these injuries. I got a bad pelvis injury, a bad ankle injury. And I thought that was the end for me and 
I went to college and, and studied and it was the first time I was at college I, I really did get led astray and I ended up hanging about the wrong people and I, I never Bad life? I always wanted to be a football player. I was always dedicated to it growing up. It was, um, that was a big part of it for me, trying to get back on that, that wee track. My but you made a choice, eh? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You made an active choice. Yeah, um, I made that choice and, and it's worked out so far. I think people listening, I think it's important to stress what you're saying there. That, you know, if you go off the rails, um, when it's worth putting the brakes on, it's worth making personal choices where you give yourself back power and self-respect and, and the, all the, the hard, long, boring slog of getting somewhere. Yeah. Once you get there, it's not the destination, it's what you've done to get there that makes a difference. Yeah. So I didn't know any of this about you at all. Um, I will say that I salute you, you know, I like uh, people who say, here's what I did, um, here's how I we change direction, it doesn't have to be a massive change, or you, yeah. or you come back from the brink, whatever it is. Good on you. Appreciate it. So, let's jump back to Aberdeen then. What, what was it like actually growing up in... Can I swear? <laughs> fucking the dog's bollocks is what it <laughs> fucking was. It was just off the scale. Um, I suppose it would be really, you know, amongst the many stupid things that I do and say, it would be massively <laughs> stupid to imagine that nobody out there feels the same. But I can't believe, I literally can't believe that anybody's got the same love for their club as I've got for mine. It's, it's, I'm literally head over heels in love with Aberdeen Football Club. More than the city. I mean, fuck's sake, Craig, I couldn't wait to get out of Aberdeen. It's full of people, it's a ri it was then, until it's now, a rich city. And it seemed to me that wherever I went, people were pompous. And, and self-satisfied. Not everybody. Hello Aberdeen, not everybody. I met a lot of people who were, because they were wealthy, they thought the world began and ended in Aberdeen with wealth, with BMWs. And I thought that was all just shite. And I couldn't fucking wait to see what the world, whether the world would beat me or I would beat the world. I couldn't wait to see whether there was what I thought, which was treasures and joy and excitement and danger outside Aberdeen, the city. But fuck me, I didn't, I, I felt Aberdeen Football Club were my, my conduit, my, my magic carpet to excitement and danger and fulfilment and pride. And I just viewed them, and I still view them now as a part of my personality. Yeah. Like when they lose, I feel that like I've failed. When I went to the League Cup, I flew over from Barcelona to mm -hmm. come to yet another bastard fucking cup final. Excuse my language. <laughs> Parental advisory here, it's not Craig's fault, this is how I speak all the time. And I knew that we would lose. I knew that Celtic are, are, are significantly better than us. But when we were as badly organised and badly set up as I think we were, it, it, when we lose, it feels like I've lost. It yeah. feels like I've done something wrong. It feels like a small part of my personality has been chipped away and that I've failed. Mm -hmm. That's how fucking sick I am. Maybe all football fans feel like that, King. Yeah. I don't know. No, but you asked me. Yeah. I've never actually enunciated it on a, on yeah. a tape before, but that's how I feel. So growing up, <clears throat> I don't remember being enchanted. 
that there are a lot of Aberdeen boys in the squad. Mm. It does matter to me now that I still meet, I meet Simi a lot, I like Neil Simpson mm-hmm. a hell of a lot. I meet Tati Cooper a bit. Um, who else do I meet? I was with Art McLeese last week down at his place in London. He's obviously not an Aberdeen boy, I don't see Johnny Hewitt much. Maybe I'm labouring the point, but at the time, I think it was interesting or notable that we had some Aberdonians in our squad. Yeah. But what I remember wanting more than homebred boys was to beat Celtic Rangers mm-hmm. over and over and over again. We were in a run, I think, when I was growing up, from when Fergie took over. I, I, I mean, I listen, I'm sorry Rangers fans if, I'm, if I've made the statistic up. My memory tells me that we went 30-something games at Patojo without losing the Rangers. And I remember my father, who took me to football the first time, he's also Graham. I remember in the middle of the run him telling me, because he liked good footballers and we both liked McCoyst, like Ali a lot, when he could play. Yeah, I love him. I remember my dad saying, because <laughs> once you dominate, once you dominate Rangers over and over and over again, Say that twice just to feel good. You, you stop talking about the individual matches because you just know you're going to win. Yeah. And the more I think about it, I think it was 35 matches. Anyway, what my dad said to me that he saw, what he thought was he saw Koisty coming out and after the first challenge in the second minute where Willie went through and got the ball or whatever it was, he thought he saw Ali's shoulders drooping and the, mm-hmm. the, the team going, now we're not going to win again. Yeah. That's what it was like. Mm-hmm. It was like the privilege of turning up to Pataudry or on away trips. There's more, I mean, on away trips you were, you were a bundle of energy and nerves and hopes and you thought you were going to win. But you turned yeah. up to Pataudry and you knew you were going to win. Yeah. I tell you something, it's, a great it's the greatest drug that I've ever sampled mm-hmm. in my life. It was just fucking magic. And I'll say again, completely changed my attitude about what could and couldn't be done in life. Yeah. I totally agree with what you're saying. I think it was a period in my, my life when I was growing up. I went to watch Rangers for a very young age. And I'll fill you in a wee bit of my background. Most of my family are Celtic fans. So me, my dad, my granddad kind of broke away. We changed the whole thing. So I grew up watching Celtic Rangers. I'd watch anybody as long as it was yeah. football. Yeah, me too. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. But when you said that... Who's your favourite player? Ever? No, at the time. At the time, Gascoigne. Gascoigne. Oh, Gascoigne, yeah, fair fuck, sir. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Met him a few times. I met both of them a few times. Gaz is mad. I've got a great story about Gascoigne. I get took into the players' lounge one day after the game. My dad was mates with Billy Davis, and they played Muddle. And it was the day Muddle stopped Rangers for one nine without Ibrox. Yeah. Okay. Taken in. Was Celtic playing at St Mirren that day? No. I don't know. Okay. Okay. Sorry. I'm off the beaten track there. But I was. He said they'd take me in and I was, I was quite nervous. The wee kid was really nervous. Yeah, of course. Thought, that, Nobody's yeah. going to want to talk to you. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> and I went in and Gaza was doing an interview in the tunnel. And he pulled me in and he stood with me. Sensational. And I just stood to let him be And then he took me around and introduced me to the This is why I sometimes try to get out. And I got out best with Chris Ward on the podcast. Yeah. You know, Paul's got mental health issues. Yeah, yeah which are inherited. But as a man, I like him a hell of a lot. I was older than you Mm -hmm. at almost exactly the same time as that was happening to you. 
but I still felt well. I still felt the privilege of him going. I'll talk to you. Yeah. Because we were being taught at that stage by professional footballers. Mm. Not 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 so much actually. Like for example, when I did my first ever column for the Green Final in yeah. in Aberdeen, they said to me, "Yes, we we want a Celtic column every week yeah. in the Aberdeen Evening yeah. Sports Paper." And Tommy Boy let me phone him at his house. Mm-hmm. Didn't know me. Magic. Took the call yeah. every Friday night, every second Friday. Unbelievable to my way of thinking. Yeah. So it wasn't off it was, but in general, footballers were still a little bit distanced from, say, you the fan, me the young journalist. But whenever I met Gaza, in fact, Gaza would give out his, he, he said, he phoned me up, Bishop Abbey, here's a number, reeled it off. I said, listen, I want to interview about fishing. <laughs> like a top yeah. fish. It really interested I was a fisherman when I was young. I said, I really want to find out about, you know, what your techniques are, why it gives you peace, all that kind of shite. Mm. He said, I, I no problem. Reeled off the number for Bishop Abbey and I, and I phoned him there and he, t- like, he treated you mm. that day in the tunnel. It was like, let's do it. That was Which great. you have to love it. Eh? Mm-hmm. It's a feeling I don't think you'll ever forget. You'll never forget a feeling like that. It's respect, isn't it? Yeah. You feel, maybe it isn't, maybe that's not the right word. Maybe I've used the word that applies to what I feel. But like, it gave you access to a world, I suppose this is what I was talking about with Aberdeen. Yeah. This world superstar gave you access to, you know, like, you're part of my world, yeah. you're in with me. Definitely. What's yeah. a feeling, man? Oh, it was great. great. <laughs> I'm never honest, I tell everywhere I go is my story. Sometimes I even bring it up to my dad just to remind him that... Very that good. I, I was with Gaza. That was me, not you. That <laughs> <laughs> was with Gaza. Well, a couple of weeks back, um, I was in Amsterdam and I visited the Ajax Arena. And uh, this is going to sound really weird when I say this to you, but when we went down into the museum, there was mm. Cruyff everywhere. Mm-hmm. And we went into the museum, the number 14 jersey was hanging mm. in, the, in the case. And oddly enough, my girlfriend was with me, but the first person I thought of was you. Mm. Which is an old thing to say. What, what no. influences has he had on you? Because I've seen glimpses and moments of absolute genius. Well, when I was young, I think everybody who's listening to your podcast knows that not only wasn't there wall-to-wall football, we didn't see a lot of European football at all. And I can't even explain to you because I hadn't seen, by the time I first saw Johan Cruyff on television, mm-hmm. I hadn't seen a, a European club at Petodre or a European team. I wasn't allowed, I wasn't taken. So I'm not quite sure how I knew that there were other countries when I was seven or eight. But I remember, that because I wouldn't be taken to the football every week, mm. even to the reserves every week, when there was football on the TV, I was kind of mad for it. Yeah. And it was, I'm certain that the first time I saw Cruyff was in black and white, mm. when they broadcast, I think it was Wembley, the first European Cup final at Ajax won, because mm-hmm. they'd played two years earlier, I didn't know about that at the time. And I've reflected on this subsequently, because all through my school football playing days, junior yeah. days, I knew they played in red and white Ajax, and I don't know how I knew, because there's no doubt in my mind that we didn't have colour TV when, when I first saw Cruyff. So something... He just... You know, I adored what I was watching at Pitodri then, which would have been Aberdeen playing largely in all blue, royal blue Chelsea yeah. strips. Um, 
And I thought I was in heaven, paradise, a privileged world. Yet for all my love of what I was watching, the first time I saw Cruyff, I was, I couldn't, it's just like, he didn't seem human. His, his balance, his grace, and I wasn't particularly balanced or graceful or athletic at that stage in my life. So to watch his movement, watch what he could, how he could trick people, um, seemed to me like nothing I'd ever seen in my life before. And then, you know, nobody can retain the Champions League now. Mm. And they won it three straight times. And by the time they were winning it the third time, I think we had colour TV. And proof positive they played it. They also played in red and white, yeah. which mattered a lot to me then. <laughs> and so building up in 1974 the World Cup, I'd, I'd remembered quite a lot of 70s World Cup because of Rivellino. Mm. I say that correctly. Pelé and Tostao were names that we all knew and we all shouted, if we scored a goal at 3 and in, we'd, yeah. shout, we'd all shout Pelé. Jorginho, but Rivellino to me, I don't know what it was, his free kicks or his moustache or whatever, but anyway, it was a big deal to me in 1970 for the World Cup. And by 74 I remember we were at some sort of mad, there was a jousting tournament. I mean, it's the only time you'll hear that fucking phrase in the podcast. <laughs> Out in Hazelhead Park, where big fucking blokes dressed up as knights would be on horseback, Going knocking each other over the lances. That was all very good for a while, but I remember thinking, can we get out of here now? Because Holland against Uruguay is starting soon, and we just got back in time. And I, I just... Listen, I haven't checked this. My memory is that yeah. he scores, and 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 that was it. That sealed it for me. I was I was a, a devotee of Cruyff, but as I grew up, I began to learn um, about football values, football ideas, and you know, by the time Fergie had left Aberdeen, Cruyff was on the point of joining Barcelona. Yeah. There was a couple of years breach. But I began to watch a football that I, I, I knew I didn't understand. Yeah. And it applied to me in later life because I was quite a good uh, striker. I scored mm-hmm. a lot of goals. As a kid at football, then at hockey, which I got good at. Yeah. And I was good enough at hockey that when I went to uni, I was put in the first team at uni. And I looked around me. And they were playing a different game from me, a game I couldn't understand. Mm. It was a game by numbers, which is like, you do this, you do that, you do the next thing. Yeah, yeah. And I was just pure instinct. And I didn't mm. fit in. Yeah. That felt bad at the time. <clears throat> and I watched this football and I went, that's the same fucking football. Mm-hmm. Where they're all intelligent enough to play by it. It's like, it was like, not strictly come dancing, it was like come dancing, which is the old ballroom dancing, which yeah. was on the TV. And it was like, everybody knew, everybody knew the same steps. Mm. It's whether you could pull them off faultlessly and with style and elan. And I was watching that, and I was like, that. I was like, why do they do that? Why do they? It's like it'll be here, 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 to the wing, cut back, go. Why does the pitch seem wider when they play? And I remember being annoyed that I didn't, I didn't automatically, naturally understand it. So I began to watch them and try to work out what Cruyff's Barcelona. 
were about, why they were doing what they were doing. Mm -hmm. And it was a mental exercise because it really bugged me. And therefore, eventually, I happened to be working in Barcelona for the first time when um, two, three days after Cliff had been sacked. And I remember being not astonished because there had been indications that the crowd were bumpy and the, the president was trigger happy. So, but I, I was annoyed. I didn't feel he'd been treated properly. It wasn't my club, but I mean, it wasn't then, I'm now a Barcelona supporter. Yeah. Um, so then I had the privilege of interviewing, meeting him a reasonable number of times. And it just, particularly when he guided Laporta and Guardiola's Ricard too, but he guided that era to play a brand of football that I've, I've never seen before and I don't expect to see again while I'm alive. I just don't, I just don't think it'll be repeated. Yeah. I knew, or at least it was my opinion, Craig, that this was the most important man in the history of football, to be a revolutionary footballer and then to be an exceptional coach, not simply for the number of trophies he won in a short space of time, yeah. but because of what he taught, how he taught people and what he gave us and what we were watching. Then to go and be a guru, you know, to be a kind of teacher, a maestro, a, some sort of philosopher of football, meant to me that those three things combined meant that nobody ever had been that important in football history. So I was, I was travelling with the people I'm about to meet now, Martin, uh, Greg and Neil White, mm -hmm. and interviewed Jody Morris the day that Milan died. And um, I'd been interviewing him, I'm pretty sure that apart from his autobiography interviews with Jack de Groot, uh, I was the last interview that he gave in Berlin. And, um, what the fuck? <laughs> <laughs> I was very, very, very emotional when he died. It yeah. really hit me, and um, he was so young, so vital, so full of elegance and grace and wit, real wit. Yeah. So, if I'd been there where you are in Amsterdam Marina and, and yeah. seeing all those things, you know, I'd have been overwhelmed uh, too. Just feels like a terrible. Uh, loss of my something that mattered to me in my life yeah. and shaped my attitudes. Mm. I appreciate you talking about it. No, no, no. I, I loved him. I loved but, him. Um, it was a surreal moment for myself because I'm, I'm standing there with my girlfriend and I'm thinking, is it like this? Is this, <laughs> is this the first she's learning about? Did you tell no, her at the time? I told her at the time. <laughs> What's her name? It's Eva. Eva, I'm sorry. <laughs> I told her at the time and <laughs> thank so you both. I want to speak to you about. Um, player who's maybe not the same effect that Cruyff's done for you, um, but I love Iniesta. Mm. I've, I've only ever had the chance to see him live once, mm -hmm. and you've seen him live many times. Can, what's it like watching him? Well, it's a bit embarrassing, really, because I think you already know the answer to the question. When he was coming through, I wasn't like Rijkaard or Hank Tenkat. I didn't judge him because of his size. Yeah. As a Scot, I was used to seeing small footballers. Not for one second did it even cross my mind that he might not be the top, top genuine art article because of mm. his dimensions. But I was so stupid 
I have, an, I have a reasonable eye. <clears throat> I have a reasonable eye for a footballer, particularly or at a young age. I can see some things. But the second time in this interview, I have to admit to a blind spot. Yeah. Because I would sit next to Rob Moore, because in those days I would get press passes when I was um, new in Barcelona, but yeah. sometimes if I wasn't writing for a newspaper, if I wasn't doing Revista that week or whatever it might be, I'd go and sit down with my pal who had spare season tickets. Mm. So we chat away about what we were watching, and this was in the middle of that stage where um, the major club in the city where I lived was was going through a, a six-year trophy drought, I think it was. Yeah, yeah. yeah. 99 to 2005. <coughs> I'm quite sure. I'm sorry about this. And so you look at Iniesta, <coughs> and he's not been bought for huge money. Yeah. And at that stage, the main stars were getting 30 or 40 grand mm-hmm. an appearance on top of a wow. four or five million salary. Because yeah, yeah. they were all petrified at Barcelona mm-hmm. that Madrid would do another Figo. So as soon as Figo went, they gave Cocu... De Boer, Clivert, Puyol, at least those people, um, 30 or 40 grand in appearance. So you got this, this young fella coming through, and it was really obvious to me that he had a movement and a balance which was distinct from certainly anybody in that squad, anybody that I'd seen in Spanish football up to that point, except maybe. Valeron, or increasingly, except maybe Xavi Prieto. But I was bugged because he couldn't score goals. Yeah. He kept arriving mm. either by a nice one-two or by freedom of movement or a dribble. He'd arrive at the, the goal and I was like, I said, Rob, this guy, fuck, he can't, even, he can't score, man. Look, look at that, man. So I wasn't dismissing him, but what bugs me to this day, hello, Rob, was Rob took two or three games. Yeah. Half of which he was staring at his mobile while he was doing deals during the game yeah. and said, different class, off the, off the scale. That pisses me off. <laughs> <laughs> um, and he's, he's a fabulous man. I remember the first time I interviewed him, which is now yeah. seven or eight years ago. And he's a wee bit worried because he, he can be taciturn. He, yeah. he doesn't speak a lot. So I checked out with people that knew him. I said, listen, what's this going to be like? My Spanish is okay, but if you've got a Scot speaking Spanish to a Spaniard who doesn't chat a lot, they said, don't worry. I said, watch what he says, not how much he says, mm. which is a motif for his football, I suppose, yeah, as well. definitely. And um, it was a joy, and he's treated me brilliantly ever since, to the extent that a couple of anecdotes when, when Luis Aragonés used to tell the Spanish team before the 2008 games, yeah. learn the referee's name, learn the linesman's name, yeah. address them by their name, they'll be, they'll, they'll be walking tall and you've got a wee advantage already. So we were in, I suppose we were in Donetsk, for the 2012 European Championship semi-final against Portugal. Mm-hmm. And the referee was a, a Turk, Sakir, I think his name is. And um, I was interviewing Arbeloa, and Iniesta was just sitting in the tunnel waiting for the Portuguese to come off so they could do the pre match, not pre match, the day before the match. And um, he sort of sidles up to me and goes, um, Who's the ref? 
Uh, like a fucking idiot, hasn't it? Let's see, see the guy in the middle of it, because there's five yeah. officials warming yeah. up. I see, he says, no, no, but who is it? Oh, sorry. I said, is that Saki? You've had him this season, because they had did. I saw they had him that season for something like that. Yeah. He's like, great, okay, thanks. Sidled off again. And about five, six minutes later, the referee's coming off with all his, so what is it? Ref plus three or ref plus four? Maybe yeah, ref four. plus four. Yeah, four, four. And, uh, coming up, and then yes, I sort of shakes his hand, calls him by his name, Sinit Sakir or Kunit Sakir, and um, sort of trots off out to do his training as if it was nothing, yeah. although it was pre prepared. Mm. What he didn't see, because he trots off out of the tunnel onto the pitch, I see the referee and his assistants going. Oh, you beauty! And yes, I know it's me. And they were chuffed. They were delighted, man. And I, that made me laugh a little bit. And then this tournament. What was the last tournament I was at? Euro, Euro 2016. We were. Uh, we, we've got a little studio at the grounds, um, immediately to the left. As you come down the tunnel, it's on the left-hand side. And again, I think it's the day before the game. And I get Ramos, Dabrowski, uh, and Iniesta. Yeah. Quick interviews, not long, but we do it short, sharp, yeah. blah, blah, blah. And it's only when we finish and they're out training that the stage, ma the floor manager comes and says, there's been a fuck up. Somebody in, in, the, in the sort of bureau didn't press record properly or some such pitch. So we've got these three good interviews and no can't fucking recorded them. So we've got to go to Andrews and Iniesta and say, listen, Andrews, would you mind doing that again? So he's like, hmm, yeah, right then. So I'm sitting back in position one where he's got to come into. I've got the German technicians and the cameraman, floor manager behind me. Don't know why they were German, but they were. And Andrews comes sort of marching in, stone faced, doesn't look like right, doesn't look left, doesn't doesn't acknowledge me. Wonders, oh shit, he's not bad, maybe. It makes me look like an idiot, this. He comes up to the position, looks over my shoulder like that. Points at the big German camera and went, your fault. <laughs> <laughs> and then he's like, right, let's go. Brilliant. And we did it again. That's great. So apart from being a lovely player, he's a lovely man. Ah, there you go. Excellent. Long story, sorry. Excellent. I, I just want to finish off by saying thanks very much. That felt good. Brilliant. Brilliant. In that case, we'll do this again. It's been a pleasure. I'm at your disposal. Much.